You might remember, but I record these sermons on Thursday mornings. And so yesterday, of course, January 6th, uh, were the events we all saw unfold um, in our nation's capital. So before we pray and we get into today's sermon, I do want to say something regarding those events. What came to mind as things were unfolding and throughout the evening was this haunting image in Psalm 80, where idolaters become like the idols they worship. It goes like this. Their idols are like silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And so here's what I want to say. This psalm is a word for the North American church, and the events of yesterday are in many ways a mirror. The witness of the North American church is fragile. And in whatever way there was an attempt to represent Jesus in the events of yesterday, and I'm speaking here of the many flags and banners that I saw bearing the name of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus and as a pastor, I think it's important to completely reject the idea that Jesus was in any way represented by what took place. Christian nationalism in any form is not of the gospel and undermines the good news that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. The church must be faithful to reject it, and the church must speak truth against any and all people in power. And I'm speaking here of of people presently in power. And when there's a transfer of power, speak truth against any and all people in power who use such power and words to dehumanize, incite division, or engender rage. We must call it for what it is, not the way of Jesus. The idol of power, especially political power in our day and time, is alluring. And I'm speaking to each person, no matter what side of the political spectrum we may find ourselves. If for a moment we think Jesus wholly and completely endorses our political preferences, whatever they may be, then we have fashioned a Jesus different than the one offered to us in the Gospels. And we are in danger of becoming like the idol we worship. That goes for each and every one of us from conservative to progressive and everyone in between or on the edges. Everyone who replaces the crucified and risen Lord with a political party or preference. Let us not forget that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God and offered to us the texture of his own politic. In Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Jesus is speaking to us. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, he is speaking to his disciples and he is speaking to us. 
You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The Jesus revealed to us in the scriptures is the one who embodied humility and self-emptying love. The one whose power was displayed most fully on the cross. The one who was raised from the dead and glorified so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we, as Christ's church, are to bear witness to. That is what we are to embody. The Jesus whose power was displayed on the cross, who was the embodiment of humility and self-emptying love. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would be merciful to us. We ask that you would lead and guide us. God, we lament the division that we see all around us. And what we need, what we need is you to heal, to restore, to be what we know you to be because we've seen Jesus, the one who through Jesus reconciles all things. So Father, reconcile, restore. Give us the power, the energy, the wisdom, the strength to be ministers of your reconciliation. And God, I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. I ask that you would help us to hear what it is you have to say. And God, I pray that we would be people who desire to be near to you, to be shaped and formed by you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So grateful for Brandon's sermon last week and the reminder of God's kingdom that will come fully one day and make all things new. The reminder that God has us and holds on to us. I found myself very moved. I found my imagination captivated by Brandon's words and by the words of scripture and revelation. And so as we turn the corner into the new year, I want to spend the next few weeks looking at just one passage and that's John 15, 1 through 17. You heard verses 1 through 11 read this morning. And now this is something we sometimes do, uh, maybe once or twice a year, where we, where we sort of sit in a passage for, for a period of time, where we, where we kind of mull over it and we, we ask that God would help it to, to be part of our imagination, to be part of our prayers, to be part of what, what um, informs our desires and, and what what we're wanting and what we're looking for. And so that's what I actually encourage you to do over the next three weeks is to sit in John 15, 
1 through 17. Now I ask you and encourage you to consider making it part of your regular intake of scripture. Um, Daily, I would encourage you to do that. Make it part of your prayer life. Turn these words that, that we are going to be looking at into prayers. And there are some wonderful words in here. Now, of course, this is no doubt a familiar passage. Um, It includes one of the seven I am statements. Um, And this one that Jesus is saying is, I am the vine. Now, I think this passage is rich in very many ways. Um, And there has some within it some fundamental things that we we need to be thinking about that informs what what a disciple's life looks like and what it means to be living life with Jesus. And I certainly think this is a passage we could carry with us through this year. Perhaps a passage to begin this year with. Because it's no surprise, but our year has begun in much the same way that last year has ended. It just seems to be so similar. And usually there's this sense of anticipation of something new or different. But it's also, I think, we perhaps come into this year hopeful. Hopeful that there is possibility of change. But that change hasn't yet arrived. And I think that there, on the one hand, there's, this, there's an impulse to kind of resist the realities before us. We, we just don't want to face them. Um, and, and then on, I think on the other hand, there's perhaps an impulse to, to just despair because of them. And I think that this text in John 15 helps us to not be people who deny and to not be people who despair. And I think that, uh, or I guess not that I think, I I would love to offer you an image, and it's an image that I think this text could help us um, embody. And it's the image of of opening our hands, right? Instead of of denying and closing our hands, and instead of despairing and closing our hands, perhaps this passage might call us to be people who open our hands as we turn the corner into this year, receptive and open to what God might have for us. And I think the passage can do its work by the power of the Spirit in our lives to help us open our hands and receive what God has. And I'd love to ask you, maybe just take a moment uh, to pause and to say, where do you you find yourself? If you were to think of that image of closed hands, open hands, where are you? What's your sense of, of how you are in the world? kind of balled up, just holding on tightly for whatever reason, fear, anxiety. If that's where you are, I encourage you to open your hands and to trust that God has something good to give, especially through this passage. Perhaps you find yourself, for whatever reason, and it's almost surprising, you feel a little bit more open. You feel a little bit more receptive. Well, I encourage you to listen to that. I encourage you to continue into that, in that posture of openness, of receptivity, of what the Spirit of God might want to do. I think we all find ourselves in this sense, perhaps, of, of, of just wondering, of wondering what What will this be like? What will this year have for us? And I guess what I'm asking us to not do is to miss what God might have for us. 
What I'm asking is that perhaps we would be people who are open to seeing God as the one who satisfies. I think of that St. Augustine quote that our heart is restless until it rests in you. And perhaps you find yourself restless. Restless because of your predicament, restless because of your, of your context, restless because of your relationships, restless because today, tomorrow, they all seem the same. But I think this is opportunity to experience and to encounter God. And so my encouragement for us this year is to wake up in a sense to the presence of God. To the presence of God, to the life of God, to the love of God. Of God, And that's what this passage, I think, holds for us. There are three promises that I see in this passage in John 15 that I'm going to constantly be looping back around to. Because so I think what this passage offers us is the promise of Christ's presence. We see that in, verse, in verses 1 through 4. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine grower. And then later on in verse 4, abide in me, because I am the vine. That's what Jesus is getting at. Abide in me as I abide in you. So the promise of Christ's presence. We also have the promise of Christ's love. Looking at verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now let's not skip too quickly past that. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And by extension, he is speaking to us. Jesus is saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Is that what you need to hear this morning? As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus loves you. So the promise of Christ's love. But we also see in this text the promise of Christ's glory. Jesus talks about the Father being glorified by this. The Father being glorified by our abiding in Jesus and bearing much fruit. And what's really wonderful about this text is it finds itself in this longer discourse of Jesus that actually begins with a, with a, um, a speaking about Christ being glorified and the Father being glorified in Christ. And it ends in chapter 17 with Jesus praying that the Father would be glorified, that Christ himself would be glorified. So these three promises of Christ's presence, of Christ's love, and of Christ's glory that we discover in this passage and that I would pray would wake us up to the work that God might want to do. And so I just want to talk about the first few verses this morning of John 15. In the three weeks, we're going to be talking this morning about pruning. We're going to be talking about what it means to remain, what it means to abide, and then also what it means to bear fruit. What, what does fruit look like? And so this week, talking more about the vine and this idea of pruning is where that comes to us at the very beginning of John 15. 15.1 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. So Jesus is calling himself the vine. Now, if, if people in the first century were, were listening to this, hearing this, they would immediately remember that Israel was called the vine. So all throughout scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, Israel was referred to as a vine. We see this in Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16. It says this, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. The prophets take this up as, as they imagine what Israel was and often is no longer. Jeremiah 2.21 this is, this, is, this is Jeremiah speaking as if the Lord speaking. Yet I planted you, Israel, as a choice vine from the purest stock. How then did you turn degenerate and become a wild vine? Hosea 10.1. Israel is, is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Later on in Hosea in chapter 14, verses 4 through 7, I will heal their disloyalty. I will love them freely. This is God speaking of Israel. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall strike root like the forests of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive tree and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They shall again li live beneath my shadow. They shall flourish as a garden. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fragrance shall be like the wine of Lebanon. See, in scriptural imagination, the vine is an image of what Israel was called to be, but could never faithfully live up to. You see this in these texts, right? This, this um, reference to what God intended for Israel to be, but also how that intention, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they failed to be and could not live up to. And this took place because of their idolatry. Again, because of their unfaithfulness and rebellion, they would wither or they would grow only to yield the fruit of further rebellion, further rejection of God and his ways. And so Jesus here at the very beginning of John chapter 15, when he says, I am the vine, he's connecting himself to the story of Israel. And we've talked about this before as we look at Jesus in the Gospels. This is something the Gospels is wanting to do, is that Jesus is often referring to himself, perhaps in veiled language, that he is the true Israel. What Israel couldn't be, Jesus is and is faithful to be. And so Jesus saying, I am the vine, he is saying, I am what Israel was intended to be, but could not be and was not faithful to be. Jesus fully and completely embodies the calling of what Israel was supposed to be, which is that through them, the world would be blessed. And so what's wonderful about this image in John is that the vine is reimagined. See, no longer are the people the vine. Jesus himself is the vine. The people, the disciples in this text, they are the branches they are connected to the vine. And so just to put an exclamation point on this, what is being proclaimed about Jesus? Again, he is saying, I am the true Israel, but he is saying, I am the trunk. I am the root. I am the core, the very center of what God has been doing. Now with this, some scholars actually connect this idea of the vine and, this, and it, to the tree that we see in the beginning of, of scripture in, in Genesis, that this tree was, was a representation both of God's source of life, but also of humanity's rebellion. 
It's a tree that represents what God wanted for his people, the knowledge of good and evil, that God would be the one who would supply that, but then also an image of humanity's denial to let God be that source of life and understanding. So Jesus is is saying, I am that source of life. I am renewal when he says, I am the vine. And this is the very source of life and meaning for the people of God, for his disciples. As one scholar says, Marion My Thompson, as a vine whose branches bear much fruit, Jesus and his people fulfill the prophetic vision of God's people as thriving in faithfulness, love, and friendship with God. As a vine whose branches bear much fruit, Jesus and his people fulfill the prophetic vision of God's people as thriving in faithfulness, love, and friendship with God. See, Jesus is being presented not only as the fundamental life source for the disciples, but the very source of life and meaning for the entire world. And so here's the question I think this raises. Do we live as if this were true? Do I live as if this were true? As if Jesus is the very source of life and meaning? Do you live as if this were true? As if Jesus was the very source of life and meaning? Do we live as if Jesus Christ truly was the vine? The one in which we are to remain. The one that that we are to find our, our complete and utter resource and identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. If someone was to look at my life, your life, what might they say about how and where I find meaning? How and where I find my source of life? What would they say? about you, if they were just to observe you, if they were just to observe me, certainly what would they say looking at my life in 2020? I think they might, well, I think it would be easy for them to see that a lot of my source of life and meaning was in the ease and in the comfort of how life is or was, and that's taken away And all of a sudden, there's a complete disruption. And I often don't like to see what that's exposed about who I am. And so if Jesus is the vine, as we see in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Then, and we as the disciples are branches we see what actually happens to those branches in this passage, in this text. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Verse 2, he removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. So after Jesus talks about being the vine, he talks about this idea of pruning. And there's both a complete removal of some branches, and then there's also a severely cutting back of some branches. Notice in this that no branch on the vine is left untouched. That's something that's stood out to me in a new way 
thinking about this text, that there is no branch on the vine that is left untouched. They are either removed or they're pruned back, they're cut back. So removal. So on the one hand, Jesus seems to be referring to those whose lives are no longer connected to them, to him. No longer connected to him as the source of life and meaning. They don't bear fruit, so therefore they are removed. Perhaps these are the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders in Christ's day that reject him as Messiah. Perhaps these refer to followers of Jesus throughout time that the Gospels tell us end up abandoning Christ. We even see that in the Gospels, but many were following Jesus and then ended up abandoning Jesus. Maybe this is referring to something similar like Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, where there is growth, but then over time it withers because of the scorching of the sun or because it's crowded out by the cares of the world. Whatever the case, we see that there are some branches that because they have, they have lost their sense of connection to the vine, no longer bear fruit and are removed. But then there are some branches that are pruned. Now the Greek word for prune or to be pruned is connected to the word catharsis. It's a cleansing. It's a purging. So, so some of the branches on the vine are cleansed or are cut back or are purged. And if you've done any pruning or you've seen it uh, as driving, you know, along the 99 um, with all of those different vineyards, you notice that sometimes looking at these plants, looking at these vines, the cutting back is severe. There is no growth. They almost appear dead or withered away. And I think about that in the life of the disciple and the life of the church, that it's possible that the looks of the vine aren't very positive. You don't really like what you're looking at. You wish there was more substance. You wish there was more fruit. And it's easy to then determine, based upon what you see, that nothing is happening or nothing is taking place. Have you felt like that for the last year? Because I'd like to think of 2020, I'd like to think of our current time as a time of pruning and as a time of removal. In the way that it's, it's, a, it's this idea of cleansing, in the way that it's this idea of purging, certainly that is what's taking place in the larger church and in the life, my life as a disciple. I would imagine your life as a disciple, certainly, certainly in our life as a church, is there's a cleansing, there's a purging. And it's easy to think that nothing is happening. It's easy to think that the, that the gardener has just let, let things go has left it to die. But what if, what if actually what is, being, what is being done is a pruning so that fruit might actually be produced? Have you considered that about your life? That what is taking place in your life now and has been taking place, and as we turn the corner into this new year, is still taking place, is a pruning so that fruit might actually come from your life? Consider that possibility. Reject the possibility that God is up to nothing. 
and hold on to hope that God is faithful to do what he's always been doing, tending the garden. Pruning the vine so that fruit is actually possible. And I think, and I believe, and I trust, and I hope that fruit, if it has not started to come yet, will come in your life, in my life, in our life as a church. As you think about your life, does it feel true? Does it seem true that you wonder what is going on? As you think about the church, certainly thinking about the events of January 6th, do you wonder what is going on? Where is the gardener? Is the vine dying? But here's the hope. The vine cannot die because the vine is Jesus Christ himself. The question are about the branches. Are we going to remain connected to the source of life that does not die so that we might then bear fruit? That is the question before us. That is the question before us as disciples. See, the hope is not in the way that the branches appear. The hope is that they remain connected to the vine. And this idea of remaining and abiding, we will talk about next week. The hope then is also who the gardener is, which Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. My father is the gardener. What this is getting at is my father is the one who works the ground. So if we have any hope of coming out of this long winter, it'll only happen because of Jesus Christ. It'll only happen because of the pruning of the father. And it will happen only because of our faithfulness in remaining and abiding in him as the source of our life and meaning. And so the question is, how can we endure this pruning? Insofar as a pruning is taking place, how can we endure this pruning? And, and one thought that just came to mind, it's easy to wonder how are Christians experiencing this time differently than other people who are, who are not claiming to follow Jesus. And I think about this question, I've been asked this question, are Christians supposed to be different in this time? And the answer is, of course, yes. And often the way that that difference gets played out is, is looked different depending on, on your own personal convictions. But I think what the text is getting at is the one thing that we can hold to is, is what makes this time different for Christians is whether or not we were remaining on the vine and whether or not what is actually happening to, happening to us is the pruning of the Father. And time will tell whether or not we are being faithful to remain and whether or not fruit will be produced. That is what's making this time different for the follower of Jesus, that we are connected to the very source of life and meaning. That though it might feel severe and though it might hurt and though it might be painful, we are being pruned, we are being purged, things are being exposed that we need to root out of our lives so that fruit might actually be possible. So we can endure this pruning because we can remember who is doing it. The Father who loves us. God, Emmanuel, who is with us in the person of Jesus, that is the one 
who's pruning. How else can we endure this pruning? We can remember what it's for. What is this pruning for? It is for the glory of Christ. We are pruned so that we might bear fruit and that that fruit would then bring glory to Jesus Christ and to the Father who is revealed in Jesus. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. So how can we endure this pruning? We remember that the Father is the one pruning. And we remember that it is for the purposes of Christ being glorified. That Christ would be glorified in my life, in our life together as a church. And we remember that Christ, as we are shown in scriptures, is glorified in our weakness. So yes, the vine may look as if it is going through a long winter and it is not bearing fruit. But in that weakness, Christ is glorified. The possibility of Christ being glorified finds, finds the possibility in our weakness. And it says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this. The Apostle Paul here is talking about a thorn in his flesh. Something that he prayed and asked that God would remove, but God never did. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. You see, when we are at our most weakest moments, when it feels as if we've been pruned so much so that there is no possibility of coming back from it, that is when Christ has the opportunity to be most glorified in my life, in your life, and in our life together. I read this week that we can consider how Jesus is an example of a life that is pruned for a greater purpose, that the life of Jesus Christ himself is pruned on the cross in order that it might become the fruit of life for the whole world. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. So that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. So as we turn the corner into this year, may we be people whose hands are open, open to receive what God has for us, open to consider the possibility that what has been happening is a pruning, a pruning by the good father who is the gardener who works the ground. May we consider the ways that our lives are connected to the vine, Jesus Christ himself as the source of all life and meaning. May we consider the ways in which we are actually working against abiding, against remaining connected to that source of life and meaning. And may we see that this pruning, that this cutting back, that this catharsis, that this purging actually makes possible the conditions because of our weakness where Christ himself is glorified, where we can learn that it is his grace and his grace alone that is sufficient for us. So that at the end of the day, as a disciple, as a church, we can do nothing but boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. who gave himself up on the cross, which looked like utter and complete foolishness, but became the power of God for the world, that the world might know him and that through him, the world might be saved. The world might come to see Jesus as the risen Lord over all. Thanks be to God.